Today, I'm going to take a look at a brand new adventure available to patrons of Sly Flourish. There is a sale, a Midgard sale going on for Kobold Press. We have two Kickstarters we're going to look at today, including the Complete Guide to Ending the World and Torrents of the Spell Hoarder. We're also going to look at a survey, a 5e RPG survey that Elder Brain has done as part of their Kickstarter. And we're going to go through more questions from the October 2022 Sly Flourish Patreon Q&A, all today on the Lazy D&D Talk Show. I'm Mike Shea, your pal from Sly Flourish, here to talk about all things D&D. This show, like all of the work of Sly Flourish is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. If you want to get access to all kinds of tips, tricks, exclusive adventures, the, the City of Arches City Sourcebook, access to the Patreon Q&A, access to a dedicated Discord channel, you can do so by becoming a patron of Sly Flourish. There is a link to become a patron in the show notes below. As an example of the kinds of things you'd get as a patron of Sly Flourish, I want to show you The Silver Grotto. The Silver Grotto is an adventure for 7th level characters written by my friend Scott Fitzgerald Gray, my, my friend and longtime collaborator Scott Fitzgerald Gray. Scott is a editor for Wizards of the Coast. He's edited many, many dozens of books for Wizards of the Coast. Fantastic designer, fantastic developer, fantastic editor. He edited all of the all of the Lazy Dungeon Master books, Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, the Lazy Dames Workbook, Lazy Dames Companion. He's also edited Fantastic Locations, Adventures, Grendel Root, Fantastic Lairs. We collaborated with, with James Intercastle on Fantastic Lairs. I've been working with Scott for a long, long time. Brilliant guy. And I asked him to be the only, the only one I've ever asked to write something for my Patreon that wasn't me. Because why would I have someone else write when I love to write so much? But he's so damn good at it. I said, hey, Scott, how would you like to write an adventure? And he said, yeah, absolutely. And he did. And the result of that is The Silver Grotto. So the Silver Grotto is an adventure set in the City of Arches. This is the sort of city setting that I have for patrons of Sly Flourish. Really, there's a big 38, 40-page city source book that you can get as a patron of Sly Flourish. It is set in the City of Arches, which those who are familiar with the City of Arches know that it's a city built with a lot of arches. And sometimes these arches open up to portals to other worlds. Some, most of the time, people come out of the other side. Every so often, you can walk through the other way and go to some other place. There are keys that activate these arches and... You can use them to go to interesting places or not, or get killed in different places or who knows. The premise of this adventure is many archways have been opening up and not everything that's been coming out has been nice. In fact, while the characters are just wandering around the city, an archway opens up. Terrible monsters come out. This is a spoiler for the adventure, by the way. Terrible monsters come out and the characters, while fighting the monsters, see a child go running and look at them with a pleading look in their eye and then jump into the portal in the other direction. And the characters are like, oh my god, that kid just ran into a portal with these monsters coming out. So they kill the monsters. They go in there and they find on the other side the Silver Grotto. The Silver Grotto is a laboratory built right on the edge of the Far Realm. Right on the, the borders between mortal worlds and the Far Realm where twisted sorcerers have been experimenting with bad magic over there. They had done so, but then they abandoned it after they were all... It, shocker, didn't go well. And a adventurer, a very famous adventurer, very famous explorer has gone missing. And it turns out that they are missing and trapped in this other world. The child in this case is actually a familiar that often goes, often appears as a small dog, but in this case can also shapeshift into other things, shapeshifted into a child and is hoping to bring other adventurers to save their, to save their, their, their companion, to save their, their to save their, their patron. So the characters go into the Silver Grotto. They battle a lot of the twisted stuff that's there. They help save the adventurer who is trapped in the grotto and, and try to return to the world without going, without going mad. Really fun adventure, 10-page adventure, full 7th level adventure, has everything you need in order to run it. Very, very cool, very fun adventure. And this is available to patrons of Sly Flourish right now, along with, I think, four other adventures that you can pick up, plus The City of Arches, plus Uncovered Secrets Volume 2, which has all sorts of D&D tips, all kinds of great stuff. So if you're a patron of Sly Flourish, you can get this. Go to your rewards page on Patreon. If you go to the Sly Flourish Patreon, the very first linked post has all of your rewards, and the Silver Grotto is listed on that rewards page, along with everything else, which you should go fetch. If you are not a patron of Sly Flourish, it is a crazy good deal. It's a, such a good deal, the price might go up. But I don't know when, I don't have any plans yet. And anybody who gets in at the earlier price will certainly be able to stay there. But I will give fair warning if I ever go it up. So check out the Silver Grotto. Very, very, very fun stuff. Midgard, our friends over at Kobold Press is having a 10 year anniversary Midgard sale. And you can pick up all sorts of Midgard books for, for dramatic, dramatic savings. 
the one I would recommend the most, the one that I would say, if you're only going to get one book from them, the book that I would get would be the Midgard World book, which you can pick up in hardcover and PDF for fifth edition. You can pick up the hardcover PDF together for 42 bucks. That is a really, really good deal for a great big meaty book. This is my special version of it. It is a great big thick book, a huge campaign setting. It's so rich with stuff, 460 pages. You can run campaigns in this world forever for your whole life you could run forever is a long time but your whole life probably there's so many little hooks so many little interesting things it is a really cool rich setting i love it i'm now running two campaigns in it i'm running a wednesday empire of the ghouls campaign in it and i'm running a scarlet citadel campaigns both set in midgard really fantastic stuff but there are many other midgard books that you can pick up uh, on sale as well so for the whole month of october so not that much longer. You can get the Midgard World Book, Midgard Heroes Handbook, Southlands World Book, Southlands Player's Guide, Tales of the Old Margrave, the Margrave Player's Guide, Warlock Grimoire 1, 2, and 3, Warlock Layers Into the Wild, Scarlet Citadel, and the Mapfolio, all for 30% off their normal price. This is a really good deal. It's a lot of books. So granted, that's a lot of different things. If I had to only pick a couple to, to, to grab, I would definitely pick up the Midgard World book. That is a fantastic book that you could use with all of your other stuff. It is really good. I would probably next pick up the Southlands World book because that has a really good view of that whole region. Lots of stuff, really well done. The paper quality, I think, is much improved over the other books that Cobalt Press has put out. So I would definitely pick up that one. And if I had to pick up a third book, I would probably go with Scarlet Citadel. You want a nice, big, meaty adventure? I'm about to run it now. Scarlet Citadel. Scarlet Citadel is the one is the one that I would run. So I'm clearly focusing on books that are more of a DM focus because that's 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 what I dig. But I would definitely pick up. I think those are probably the three best books of that list of 10 that you can pick up. And it's now is a fantastic time to get them for 30% off. So check that out. We're going to look at two Kickstarter spotlights. The first is the Kickstarter for The Complete Guide to Ending the World. A title like that is a book that probably would have gotten me suspended from school if I was if I was walking around with it. It is called Apocalypse is the name of the Kickstarter. Apocalypse is a book that is going to be part essays on running adventures built around apocalypses and part scenarios that you can use in, in your adventure. It is I it was written, it was put together by Alan Tucker. Alan reached out to a whole bunch of different writers. There's some videos here that you can look at if you want to know more about this book. He reached out to a whole bunch of writers, including yours truly. I am, I am one of the writers that wrote essays for this particular book. And there are a whole bunch of myself, Amy Vorpal, Connie Chang, Bashir Grouse, Anthony Joyce Rivera, Aaron Roberts, Kate Osborne, Teos Abadia, a whole bunch of us that wrote essays for this particular book. And it is $20 for the PDF version of this book, which includes the full PDF of the book, plus all the maps suitable for virtual tabletops. That I, I backed to this project. It doesn't say I did, but that's because I'm not currently logged in. But I did back this project and I backed the, the, the $20 PDF one. Nice, safe bet. There's always tricky bits with physical manufacturing of stuff. So if you want to avoid some of the tricky bits with physical manufacturing, if you're a little worried about it, aim for the PDF. PDF, a much easier product to get delivered, much easier product to get into your hands. So it was really fun to write. The essay that I wrote for this, I was very excited about. It was a really fun essay to write. And I'm very excited to read the essays from many of my friends who are part of this and many other designers who wrote for it. And it'll be very interesting to see what these scenarios are like as well. There is no, there is some layout samples here, but there is no preview of it. So take a look at the layout samples, maybe watch the videos and see what kind of stuff you've got here. But it looks very, very cool. $20 to get in for the PDF. That is Alan Tucker's Apocalypse, a complete guide, a complete game master's guide to ending the world. So check that out. There is a link to this Kickstarter down in the show notes below. I had talked about the Crown of the Oathbreaker Kickstarter and did a preview of the book itself when it came into my hands. This is a this group is building a massive huge massive books of adventures. Crown of the Oathbreaker is a huge adventure. I think it's like 7 or 800 pages. Massive massive book written by in this case Elderbrain is the name of the company. And when you look at the Kickstarter, you look at the art that they're using, you look at the products they're developing, feels very much like a Ghostfire kind of capability that they've got going on here. So Torrent 
of Torrance of the Spell Hoarder is a high-level D&D 5e adventure. I think it starts at 15th level and goes up to the end. It is meant that you could connect it to the end of Crown of the Oathbreaker, or you could run it itself. It is a seafaring sandbox adventure. The Kickstarter, currently with just under 1,000 backers, has... Tons and tons and tons of stuff that you could get. There is a huge, look at the giant pile of products. If you were to get all the products for Tides of the Spellbreaker and all of them for Crown of the Oathbreaker, you get DM screens, you get miniatures, you get dice sets, you get cards, you get all kinds of handouts, you get maps, you get, you know, little framed pictures that you can put on. a great big. It's almost like a box set for, for this entire adventure. It's really interesting to see these almost like beetle and grim quality products that they're putting out. That said, I don't have the room in my house for all this kind of stuff. So I'm picking up the digital version. I picked up the digital version of Crown of the Oathbreaker. I picked up the digital version of Torrents of the Spell Hoarder. Really interesting stuff. This one does offer a preview. Let's take a look of an adventure introduction. Then the first thing that grabs you is, wow, look at the vibrant artwork that this has. The design looks really, really good, really solid. Crown of the Oathbreaker, definitely a very, very solid design. Really cool looking book. You know, very exciting stuff. If I had more time to run more campaigns and I was running a campaign in this, I would definitely pick up the physical version. As it is, I often will pick up the digital version so that I can dive into them, so that I can absorb them and kind of bring them in. But I'm not ready to invest physical space in my house for books of that I'm not that I'm not definitely going to run. But boy, boy does it look boy does it look really cool. Definitely a high seafaring seafaring adventure. It looks, you know, it it has an aesthetic that reminds me a lot of like Divinity uh, Divinity Original Sin, Divinity Original Sin 2. Kind of looks very similar to this thing. Wow, look at those monsters. Really nasty looking monsters. So if you want to take a look, if you're, if you're on the fence about, oh, do I want to back something like this? You might as well go back this preview. The preview is about a 20 page preview, lots of art, lots of cool stories, lots of things that you can dive into and kind of see, is this the sort of thing that is for me? But I think it looks fantastic. I saw it and said, oh, yep. I was so happy with Crown of the Oathbreaker. There is no way I would not back the digital version of the, the, the digital version of Torrents of the Spell Hoarder. Physical, let's see. Let's take a look at the pricing. 20 bucks again for the digital version. But wow, look at all the stuff you get. The digital bundle is huge. Look, look at all the things you get for, for this. Really, really... Really, really crazy stuff. Now, one thing that keep in mind is they put in their they put in their stretch goals for all of this thing. And some of those stretch goals are pretty high, million dollar stretch goal kind of things. So hopefully they reach that and then you get all that stuff. But otherwise you're getting player option PDF, Gazetteer PDF, Map Pack, all kinds of different stuff. The, the, the actual adventure itself, of course, in PDF. So lots of different things that you get for a $20 investment. Pretty, pretty good pretty good price you can also if you don't have crown of the oathbreaker you can get the digital bundle series which includes both crown of the oathbreaker and torrents of the spell hoarder together for 40 bucks also a very reasonable price for the amount of material again trust me you're going to get tons and tons. look look at the picture of the book look at that look at that <laughs> look how big that book is you remember when i was talking about like tolis and how big the book tolis was by money cook games this is like 30 percent bigger like it is it is a massive massive book so you're going to need one of those like stone podiums to put this book on so you don't hurt yourself. You probably have to put a weight belt on in order to open the book because it looks pretty big. So very, very cool stuff. I'm excited for this. I backed it and I'm, I'm excited to see it. So that is Torrents of the Spell Hoarder. You can find a link to this Kickstarter down in the show notes below. So Elderbrain, the company that did the Torrents of the Spell Hoarder, they do a lot what I what I'm I, I dig, which is sort of a data-driven design idea. They do big surveys and polls. They did a really big one for Crown of the Oathbreaker. And I talked about it on this show before. And they did another one for this new, for this new one. And I thought it would be interesting to take a look at some of the results that they had from this because we could learn a little bit about our hobby overall by looking at this survey. So the Crown of the Oathbreaker poll that they did had 2,300 respondents, which is a really big number of respondents. The most recent one that they did had 390 respondents. Now for for data science nerds, for statisticians and stuff like that, there's an important consideration to note with these responses. The obvious thing would be to say, well, it had significantly fewer responses, so it's a less accurate result. That isn't really true. In fact, neither of them are going to be very accurate because they are based on selection bias. The, the, whether you had 390 respondents 
or you had 2,300 respondents, it is not a pure random sample of the group that you're trying to survey. Instead, it is a self-selected survey. Who you sent it to and who decided to respond is not random. Those are specific individuals with specific ideas about what they want and specific reasons to go. So the difference between having 2,300 respondents for their original Crown of the Oathbreaker survey and having 390 for the second one doesn't necessarily mean that the second one is less accurate than the first one. Both of them are generally inaccurate, as are all polls and surveys that are done like this, because they are selection there they are selected human beings decided to take it it wasn't you know you didn't go across the entire planet randomly select 2300 people and say tell us about your dnd experiences because hey you wouldn't get a lot of dnd experiences but because it's not random selected it's always iffy the kind of results you get instead you have to say like well there is this unknown about who decided to answer who who saw it is one question and who decided to answer is another one one of the advantages of doing the poll that the way they did is they do some demographic questions which give you an idea of can you can you get a general feeling for the kinds of people that that have answered this survey so the example is north america 66 percent of it answered from north america and 20 about 25 percent answered from europe i don't think that that demographic that it, i don't know it's uh, how far does that demographic steer away from general dnd not really sure i expect there's more people in north america than 66 percent that play dnd hard to say i think it probably has a slight european slant because i know elder brain is a european company which means that they probably the, who they sent the survey out to probably went to more europeans than it did in the united states on per capita still pretty good mix i mean you look at your you look at all the different the different ranges you've got ages the age range looks a little i don't know maybe a tad higher then the age range that Wizards of the Coast typically talks about with their polls. So it polls a little bit higher. You have a lot of people over 50, you know, 12, 13% over 50. You have 28% that are 38 to 50, 41%, 25 to 37, 12 to 24, 17%. So pretty good mix. How much does it match the pure demographic of D&D? Hard to say. Again, still useful. Gender, this one definitely skews more male, 90% male, only 6% female, non-binary is 1.5%. Wizards said that they have a 60-40 split now, that 40% women, 60% men. So there's definitely a skew towards towards men in this one. How many years have you been playing? And again, look at that, a pretty, pretty even spread, one to four years, five to 10 years. This is really interesting because this like one to four and five to 10, it's about more than 50% of people. And you could probably say that people have been playing five to 10. I, if you had said eight, that would have been at the edge of fourth edition. And that would have been mean, that would have meant that more than half of the people surveyed only have played D&D with fifth edition. I think that that's particularly interesting for us old timers who've been playing for like, oh, I've been playing 38 editions. Guess what, old man? I'm talking to myself. Don't, if you're, if you're an old person who's played a lot of D&D, I'm yelling at myself, not at you. But guess what, old man? You are not the majority anymore. So pretty good, good, pretty good mix of ages, a, age range and the, the length of time that they've been playing. Do they prefer to play a DM or both? I think this is pretty interesting. I definitely sway in the I prefer to DM. I like playing, but I much prefer to DM. So that that's kind of curious. Module format do you use? And some of the, we're just going to skip over a few of these. I think there were a few answers here that I thought were particularly interesting that I was going to focus on. And I'll link to the whole survey down in the show notes. So if you want to go through the results yourself and take a look at what, what you found, you can take a look below. PDF, 66%. I think you could answer multiple formats on this one which is why the percentages are all over the place like it's not like they add up to 100 they add up to like a lot format doesn't matter i write my own adventures i use them all vtt print hardcover soft cover all sorts of different things pretty big skew most people prefer pdf 66 percent like pdf lots of people like pdf print soft cover 30 percent print hardcover 60 percent vtt 30 percent that's pretty interesting I use them all 30%. So that also, because that includes VTT. Format doesn't matter. I write my own adventures. What VTT software do you use? This one is a really interesting one. I, I, I Boy, I hate the table, but the data is really interesting. 58%, 60% said they use Roll20. The one trick in here is it does not mention D&D Beyond. And I really, I know D&D Beyond isn't VTT software, but I really would have been interested to put D&D Beyond on this list too, because there's no good way to compare this stuff with, with, with D&D Beyond. Never heard of some of these. D20 Pro, never heard of it before. Fantasy, Fantasy Grounds, 9.7. Foundry, 23%. Twice as many people using Foundry as Fantasy Grounds. Fantasy Grounds is definitely expensive, so I can, I can understand that. But I'm surprised. I thought Fantasy Grounds was the clear number two. Now, 
I, I get, again, skewed survey results and everything. But one of the things when I look at a survey like this, and again, we're not curing cancer here. We're not testing new vaccines. So we don't have to be perfectly statistically sound in, in all of our understanding and judgment because like I'm not cashing out my 401k based on this information. But one of the questions to ask is, is there a reason, if you assume that it was a skewed result, if you assume that, and we, it is, right? We know that this is a skewed poll. Why would it poll differently for this question than a general random sample? And I can't think of a good reason why it would. I'm not saying that that means this is accurate, but I'd probably put a little bit more weight into these answers as being generally acceptable than I would saying like, oh, because Elderbrain did it, it definitely skewed more towards foundry than fantasy grounds but maybe like again if it had a heavy european slant and for some reason it's harder to get fantasy grounds in europe i don't know if that's true that could have been a reason why but i, I you know that's really interesting uh, roll 20 of course more than almost double to triple the amount of people that use roll 20 i did think the i don't use a vtt was interesting only 24 percent don't use a vtt that's of all players that's the whole survey result 390 respondents 24 percent don't use a VTT. 60% use Roll20. That's pretty profound. You know, this fits my, my, my last poll that I did on the number of people playing online versus playing in person. And it was 70-30. That's 70% were playing online, 30% were playing in person. And that was a huge shift from two years previous before COVID hit, where it was the other direction. 70% were playing in person. And I would bet that actually a growth, the growth of the, of the industry has has definitely grown in digital space and of course then we get into what well, wizards of the coast building their own vtt they're trying to get involved in that they hired you know all the stuff we talked about in the previous episodes about hiring two people from microsoft and amazon to now vice president over wizards of the coast and the vice president of DD are both digital backed people so we can see why look at these look at these results why would you want to pass this how often do you use miniatures i don't know what these answers are so it's really unfortunate because it's like one two three and four and i'm sure there's a corresponding question for this that we could probably figure out but i don't know what it is so i think that those were the main things the vtt one in particular was some of the things how long does your session game last one to three hours four to six other things no nothing in here that really like shook me where do you get you this is a good one for those of us who have to like market our books to people where should we be marketing our books where do you Get informed about new D&D related topics online. Product websites, 50, 60%. Google, 30%. Facebook, 30%. 30% on Facebook. Ugh, I hate Facebook. 12% Instagram. Discord, 30% on Discord. 20% on Twitter. So look at that. Discord, 50% higher than Twitter. Reddit, 50% on Reddit. YouTube, 60%. I'm glad I'm on YouTube. Twitch. Hey, friends on Twitch. Hey, friends on YouTube. 10%. Blogs and news sites, 20%. Kickstarters, 1.5%, and then everything else kind of falls off. Do they have email newsletter? I don't think is on here. I wonder if that is the, let's see. Oh, product websites and newsletters, 60%. So as a marketing guy, as a, am I a marketing guy? I guess. I'm everything. I do it all. YouTube, newsletters, Reddit is really a big one. Blog, good stuff. Where do you purchase your stuff? Amazon, hobby bookstore. A lot of people buying up hobbies and bookstores. That's good. Online retailers, drive-thru RPG, 50%. Kickstarter, sick. look at that. Kickstarter is bigger than drive-thru. DMs Guild, 40%. That's very interesting. Really cool stuff. Really, and, and boy, it goes on and on. They get a lot also. I'm, I'm, again, I'm not going to go through all this. Lots and lots of detail on. So very interesting. Better than your opinion, man right? Like that's just your opinion, man. When you're asking yourself, like, what's the world of D&D like? A lot of times I'll see it a lot in different places about everyone hates fighters. And you're like, do they? Or do you hate fighters? And you just assume you're everyone. I get that a lot. I see that all the time. Everyone hates that. This is an absolute truth. Everybody knows this is true. Mm, get out of your own head for a bit. Surveys like this can help. They're not perfect but they can help you just kind of break out of the mold. Again, I thought Fantasy Grounds was twice as popular as Foundry. Looks like I was, could very well be wrong. Am I wrong? I don't know, because it's not truth. I, now my question is shaken. My, 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 my little head model is shaken. So really interesting. So I would take a look. At, if you want to see more about this poll and survey, lots and lots and lots of questions, which is probably why they only had 390 respondents because it takes forever to fill out. I think they had done two before. And I, I, I wonder if they should have done two before about like, hey, we're going to do one that's just on our adventure versus a general purpose survey. But really cool stuff. Really interesting. Good, good data. How do you feel about sandbox adventures? Again, there's like, I can't tell what some of these answers are. I wish they, I think you could do some cross-referencing by going to the original poll and figuring out what questions they answered and then look at the results and see and see what they, what they 
they got. But they, they did get into like, what kind of hooks do you like in adventure? What sort of moral dilemmas do you like? What kind of endings do you like? All kinds of that stuff about, you know, the kind of adventure you want to run. Really interesting stuff. As a data nerd, I love stuff like this. Again, I get it. Don't, you don't have to leave a comment. I am well aware of the flaws of various surveys, but they're better than just you guessing. That's my feeling. They go, there's an argument. Are they better than just you guessing? I don't know. Probably. I got to assume they're better, but at very least they get you thinking about it a little bit more. Like maybe this isn't accurate at all, right? But it's probably not like hundred percent off. And, and it might get you to think, well, maybe it is, maybe it's true that Fantasy Grounds is only half as many people using Fantasy Grounds as Foundry. Maybe I should dig into that a little bit more and find out, maybe do some more of my own polls. I, it doesn't really matter too much to me, but you know, very interesting stuff. Check that out in the show notes below. I want to talk about my Dragons of Stormwreck game. Yesterday, I finished my first full playthrough of the new D&D starter set, Dragons of Stormwreck Isle. And I really loved it. It is a really, really good adventure. I, I spent a beautiful day yesterday out in the park near me, writing up my thoughts and my tips and my tricks for how to make the most out of this Dragons of Stormwreck Isle game. I'm going to finish that article up probably next week, and I'll probably, I don't know when I'm going to post it, and I'll probably do a video about it as well. So I'm going to do a video, I'm going to do an article and a newsletter talking about my suggestions. But an interesting thing is, I don't really have that many suggestions because it is really solid. Sort of un, unlike, I would say... I don't have near the problems with this adventure that I did with Lost Mine of Fandelver and Dragon of, of Dragon of Ice Spire Peak. I love those adventures. I think they're excellent adventures, but both of them have things that you probably want to do to make it run smoothly. I don't think you have to do nearly as much stuff to get Dragons of Stormwreck Isle to run smoothly as you did with those previous two. It might be my favorite D&D adventure. It might be my, my number one most recommended D&D adventure. I think if somebody says, what adventure should I run? I would say run Dragon of Stormwreck Isle. Dragons of Stormwreck Isle. And the reason why is it's very straightforward. It's very easy to run. It's short. It's only about eight hours of content. It's you know, two to, you, you know, somewhere between two to four sessions of content for you to run. So it's not a huge adventure, but that's okay. It gets you to third level. It gets you probably to fourth level in about two to four sessions, depending on how long your sessions are. Really, really good stuff. And a very good starter adventure. I, I haven't run it for new DMs. I haven't seen new DMs run it, so I can't say like how, how easy is it for you to run it. That's somebody else's problem to figure out, but I know it was easy for me to run. And a couple of things that really grabbed me about it is one, as an adventure, it's very straightforward. It's like you're going to caves, you're going to an old derelict ship, you're going to this strange observatory, you're finding stuff. But the importance of overlaying lore really comes across in this adventure. You're learning about Bahamut. You're learning about Tiamat. You're learning about other evil entities. I'm not going to spoil it, but there's other evil groups that you're going to learn about. There's all sorts of ways to kind of like pick up this stuff. So instead of just being a straightforward adventure, there's stuff for you to learn. There's stuff for the characters to learn while they're exploring this. There's neat little side treks, neat little side adventures. One thing that I love about this adventure is it has a floor, a, a basically how bad can things get that isn't a TPK. That at, if at any point you hit the equivalent of a TPK, your protagonist will come and save you. It can seem railroady, but it's really a safety measure. It's just like a safety thing to say, hey, you're not going to have everybody wiped out. And generally speaking, I don't think you're going to have to worry about everybody getting wiped out because it's balanced very well. They have, they've, they've tuned it very carefully to make sure that player, characters aren't going to get wiped out. That said, I will say the final boss of the adventure was really too easy that my, my players wiped, wiped them out very, very quickly. So there's little bits of tuning that you can do. I would, I would, I would suggest having your hands on the dials. You can increase or decrease hit points, increase or decrease number of attacks. There's things you can do to make it like more challenging or less challenging or deal with it to give the, the right pace. But it was really fun. My players enjoyed it a lot. I enjoyed it a lot. And I wanted to share that. And so you're going to find an article about it where I go into details about how to run it. You're going to, I'm going to do a video about it where I talk about details on how to run Dragon of Stormwreck Isle. So I'm going to be working on that over the next couple of weeks. But I will give you my recommendation right now, which is it's really good. Pick it up on D&D Beyond. You can get on D&D Beyond now. Scipio asks, have you looked at the supporting Watsi videos? I have not looked at the videos. I've, I think I've watched one or two and I should watch them before I offer my recommendations, I think. Right, that's a really good idea. What I've heard is they are really, really good. It's 15 bucks on the DMs Guild, which frankly is a little high. 
I bet once this starts hitting Amazon, once you can start getting it for discounted prices, you, you should be able to pick up this box set for pretty low. You can also pick it up at your local game shop if you want to support your local game shop. Head down there, pick it up. It is a it is a really good adventure. It is a really, really good stuff. I would I definitely recommend Dragons of Storm Isle. I think it is an excellent starting adventure. If you're not really looking for a starter adventure, if you want something meatier with a lot more detail, a lot more like big complicated stuff going on it might not be for you but i know i ran it for a whole bunch of veterans right i've run it for people where i think every one of us now there's a couple friends of mine that have only been playing for a couple of years but i think everybody else there has been playing the game for years and decades and we still had a really good time we just it's D, man it's hard not to love D. so check out dragons of storm Isle. you could I'll, I'll talk more about it you'll see you'll see more about it in future videos Let's get into our Patreon questions. Every month I post a new Patreon Q&A to the Sly Flourish Patreon site. Patrons can ask a question there. I will answer every question on the Patreon site. Some of those questions I bring over to the talk show and talk about here on the talk show. Sometimes they turn into a longer video or a longer article or something like that. The first question is from Vespora. What is your experience with DMs like myself who have struggled on the player side of the table but seem to have a knack as a DM? Is this typical? The DMs I know have expressed similar issue with being on the other side of the table. Have you had that experience as well? And do you have any advice? Yes. I think DMs... Well, so here's something interesting. This is a lot, lot to unpack, as they say. A lot to dissect in this question. From my understanding, from polls that I have run, from flawed polls that I have run, most people got to become DMs because nobody else wanted to do it. So you would say, well, if that's the case, then pretty much anybody could have been a DM. But I have a feeling the people that ended up saying, I want to DM enough, I want to play D&D enough that I'm willing to DM, are into D&D more so than players who are saying, ah, I'll play, but I'm not really interested in running a game. I also would say that I think there are certain people who are drawn to the DM style of things and like to do it. You know, often performers, people who like to don't mind being out in front of people and showcasing, not worried about being a fool, not not worried about making making jokes. Certainly confidence can definitely help. I, I don't think you need all that stuff in order to DM. I think you can learn a lot of that stuff while DMing, especially if you're there with your friends and your friends are supportive. You can do all that kind of stuff. But I definitely think that there are, there are kinds of people who are into D&D more than others and that those people probably end up becoming DMs. I think it's one of the reasons why if you look at like who buys stuff, it's almost always DMs who are buying stuff, which just bothers a lot of people. Me, it's just like, well, that's that's how it is. So I think there's that. I, I know that we were just looking at that poll. At, 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 a lot of people prefer to do both. I like doing both, but I much prefer DM. And part of the reason why is that when I'm DMing, I'm 100% on that... I am fully engaged. I am fully in flow. I cannot, there's no check in Twitter. There's no check in my Discord server when I'm running a game. And, you know, I'm busy. I'm busy with everything. I'm busy doing stuff. And when I'm playing, I'm not as busy. And I get distracted. And every, the rest of the world is one tab away. Maybe we should see how things are going on in Ukraine. And I, I, I can get distracted. Now, I have some tricks that I've been doing, and I tried to do this in some games that I've played in, where I take notes. I try to really pay attention to the other characters and their stories. I try to think about how my character would be reacting to theirs, not necessarily saying anything or getting involved or jumping in, just thinking about what's my character doing while they're doing what they're doing. And by doing that, by trying, I have to, I have to make myself stay engaged. But when I do, I really have a better time in the game. I really enjoy that. And... And I think as a DM who is in the player seat, there's lots of stuff. I've talked about this before. There's lots of things that we can do as a DM who is currently playing. And that is like stay engaged with the story, support the story the DM is telling, make sure your character fits the story that the DM is telling, make sure that your character fits with the other characters, that you're drawing them in, that you're connecting well with them, that you're being a good supporting, be a good supporting cast member. Don't be the spotlight. Be a good supporting cast member to the story and to the other characters that are there. That is that is definitely something you can And take notes. To me, taking notes is the big one. By you taking notes, you can share your notes with your everybody else. You can hear helping the DM understand what you're what you're grabbing. Lots of different things you can do there. So that's what I would recommend. Great question. Victor N says, my group is just starting up a Ruins of the Grendelroot campaign. Thank you so much. for That's fantastic adventures. Ruins of the Grendelroot available on the Sly Flourish bookstore. 
We had our session zero, and I was pleased to see that one of the players chose to be a chose to be a black claw deep delver background for her character. This got me wondering, though, her character will naturally have a lot of knowledge about deep delver's enclave, its NPCs, the Grendel Root, and Black Claw Mountain in general. I don't want to dump a bunch of reading material on this player, nor do I want to spend a lot of the game time speaking as her character about what they know. How would you balance player knowledge versus character knowledge in this situation? The answer, my my, the way I would handle it is by her character clearly knows what's going on. And anytime it's relevant, you can then bring up whatever the piece of information is that's relevant through her character. Because you're a Black Claw Deep Delver, you know the truth about the majocracy that's below her. You know about the statues. You know about the tunnels. You know some of this history. But it only matters when it's relevant. You don't have to bring up everything because everything isn't relevant at any given moment. But when you're running your adventures and continuing your adventures, and when they see something, everyone else might go, wow, look at that tower. And you say, yeah. You all look and wonder at the tower, at the great beam coming out of the top. Your character knows that this tower is actually one of a few different towers that the majocracy that ruled over the group before has used in the past. You know, so you can always just like use that character. It's great when they have a background like that because that's a great secret and clue vehicle. It's a great way for you to take these one line secrets and clues, these one little lines of lore that you're going to drop in through your game and feed it through that character. And it makes them feel good because they feel like they're the one doing it. Right, they made a choice. That choice is that background. They are they were the one doing it. And then for stuff that's a little bit more archaic, you might have people roll like a history check, but they get advantage because they're a deep delver. Like deep delvers get advantage on that check because they chose that background. So that's that's kind of the stuff I would do. You do not have to dump all that material on them. Instead, you can just give them the information that they need at that moment. You give that one line of information that they know at that moment, I think is a really uh, a good way to handle that. Damon S says, I've recently moved across country, leaving my game group behind and time zone stuff makes a virtual game hard. I'd like to try to run a game at my local shop to find a new group. Any tips on adventures to run for a group of strangers? Dragons of Stormwreck Isle. I think any of the three starter set adventures would be great. I think Dragons of Stormwreck Isle, Lost Mine of Fandelver, Dragons of Icepire Peak, those would be my three go-to adventures. They're good, easy starting adventures. They have lots of stuff. But as I just talked about Dragons of Stormwreck Isle, I would definitely run Dragons of Stormwreck Isle. I think it's a good one. I think you could run it and get a lot of really interesting things from it. If you're if you're bored and you want to try other adventures, of course, I have two first-level adventures that you can download for free off of the Sly Flourish bookstore. One for Ruins of the Grendel Root, one for Fantastic Adventures. Both are short, easy-to-run adventures. They are de- they are designed for new DMs to kind of run and, and, and go with. I have the character packet as well that's available also. If you go to the book, if you go to the Fantastic Adventures page and you go to the Ruins of the Grendel Root page, you can see they've downloaded your free sample and you can download those. But there's also the the character pack that includes pre-gen characters from first to fifth level directly in the pack. So you could check those out as too. Those are probably my biggest recommendations. I would, I would say the starter adventures are really good. All three, the, the, the two starter adventures and the, the DD essentials kit adventure or the two adventures that I offer. If you want to run a smaller layer, fantastic layers also has a free first level layer where you get to fight centipede cultists who doesn't love centipede cultists. So you can check that out. Those are all in the bookstores. That's in the Slyfish bookstore. I'll link to all this in the show notes below. So Damon, that is probably what I, would what i would do and i would try some virtual gaming i know you say that time zone stuff makes virtual gaming hard you know i would i would work with that a little bit a lot of people have learned how to play online a lot of my games where we used to play in person but people moved we now move online or people are just too far away or, or have other life circumstances that make it difficult to get together in person we play online it works really good so i would definitely recommend i would i would push harder i think going and playing your local game shop is great and I would do it, and and that's awesome. I would I would work harder to to try to find an online. Carl A says, "Do you have any advice on using different maps than what comes with a published adventure? How do I make a map with a completely different layout still work? I often feel confined by the adventures maps and will spend way too long trying to reproduce them. And if an image file is not available, I have tons of maps from Patreon and Kickstarter, but I usually run published adventures, so those maps don't get used much. Thanks for your time. Thank you for the question. So." This is this gets into like how much do you have to hang on to what a published adventure offers you? And sometimes you can just look at what the general theme of that section of that adventure, that 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 realm, that layer, that layer or whatever. And you can just grab the theme and rewrite the rest yourself. You can rebuild the encounters, you can rebuild what you find in the different rooms. You can take an adventure, you can look at what the theme of the adventure is, the theme of a particular section of that adventure, then go find another map. Like if you want a Dyson logos map or you have another map that you want to use or you want to draw your own map, you can just say what is what has to happen or what are the parts of this part of this adventure that I like that I want to grab and use 
or do I just want to generally grab the theme and then redo it? And I've done this for many, many adventures. There's many adventures where I've read it. I'm like, I don't really want to run the map that way. I don't really like the design. I'm going to run it this other way instead. And I just rerun. I just use the same theme, but I reuse the map. You can still use the art. You can sometimes use the encounters. So this is one really look at an adventure. Remember, they used to be called modules. Look at them as modular adventures. What are the pieces you can pluck out? Maybe you just use the boss fight. Maybe you ignore most of the encounters that are in there. You change them with your own encounters. You change them with your own monsters. You are free to do whatever you want with them. And I would recommend that you take that freedom and use it to make that adventure as much as you can. So I would say, take a look at what the original one had, decide what components of it you want to keep or need to keep to keep the adventure headed the way you want it to go. Throw away everything you don't want to use. And you can almost always rebuild, certainly from the perspective of refilling out a map, you can refill on a different format of map or a different layout of a map with the components that you need in order to keep that chapter going. So I, I've done it. It takes, does it take some work? Yeah, it takes a little bit of work, but you know, it can work. So I would, I would try that out. Shanta292 says, it's, as it's Halloween month, my favorite holiday, how do you inject horror into your game? Any strategies that have worked well? I'm not great at putting horror into my game. I have not run games where horror is really a major component of it. I mean, I run Ravenloft every year for Halloween. I'm running it in two weeks for, for a group online. I would say what I you know, music and atmospherics can do a lot. So can you change the lighting in your room? Can you change the music up so the music is sinister? You could do things like costumes. You could do pr- tabletop props, like weird, you know, hit up the, I'll tell you, here's a, here's a tip. You want a good tip to grow on? Go to like your holiday stores, you know, w- after Halloween. Go go there two, a week or two after Halloween and pick up all the discount stuff and save it for next year. Lots of great D&D props that you can pick up by going by by going to going to any sort of store that's selling a lot of Halloween stuff, go pick it up after the fact. Your plastic skulls, your weird skeletons, wall hangings, all kinds of stuff that you can use, and you can use them as props. It sort of gets the gets the environment gets the environment right. If you can play at night, that certainly helps. If you really want to see what like a horror themed adventure can look like, check out the game Ten Candles. I have not played it. I haven't even really read it, but I have definitely heard a lot about it. And Ten Candles is this horror-themed game where you literally have your players in a completely dark room with ten candles lit. And as the adventure is progressing, the candles are going out until eventually like all of the candles are out and you are engulfed by the darkness around you. It is a really interesting, it's not quite like a, like a live action role play, but it's a little bit very, very cool horror themed idea. You can also use dread. Dread is Jenga, the RPG that uses a Jenga puzzle. So as you're kind of, you know, talking about what's going on in the game, you're, you're also playing Jenga. And when it collapses, so too does your whole adventure collapse. That can add a lot of stress to it as well. So those are, those are a couple of different RPGs you might check out that offer some kind of horror elements. Otherwise, you go with it. And horror adventures aren't for everybody. I love the theme of horror adventures. I love Curse of Strahd. I love vampires. I love gothic adventures. But I'm also kind of a goofy DM and my games end up kind of goofy. And that's okay, right? It's, you know, it's still fun. We still enjoy it. So, you know, you could definitely get like, you know, Buffy the Vampire Slayer sort of campy, campy horror as well and still have a lot of fun with it. So don't feel like you have to make it horror. And sometimes your players are going to bring a lot of humor to a game to kind of offset the horror. And, and you know, I don't know the best way to deal with that. You probably don't want to just yell at him and be like, they're supposed to be scared. But because a lot of times people deal with the funny, I would just let the funny roll and then go back into the horror again. So, so check it out. So those are, those are a couple suggestions I have. I'll link to those in the show notes below. Thigo L says, you have talked several times on the show about the stickiness of D&D Beyond or more recently about how Cobalt Press and MCDM should get into creating their own character building tools for their content. However, we both see that there is a bigger general trend towards digitizing in our hobby and this can mean a lot of things. How do you feel about it? What are your thoughts on this? Ramble on, I got my bingo card ready. Are you actually here, Thigo, with your bingo card? Oh God, I did. It's Taego, right? What is it? Tell me how to pronounce it again. Taego, I was so, oh, I was going to put the pronunciation right here in it, so I didn't screw it up, and I forgot. Taego it is. You can put that, you, you get an automatic free, one of your checkboxes in your bingo card for free today. Tiago, Tiago. Man, a bird just hit a window outside. Sorry about that, Tiago. The stickiness of d Beyond. I'm waxing, pontificating digital, well, so it's inevitable right? The world moves on. We don't get to choose. I don't get to choose how it's going to work. It's going to go kind of whatever direction it's going to go. People are going to choose what they choose. 
And there, I don't think there's anything really in the way right now. There's not a monopoly. I will say that there isn't a monopoly on things because the reason why D&D Beyond is as sticky as it is is not because it's Wizards of the Coast because it wasn't for a long time. It's because it's really good. It's because it does a really good job. I'd say, I argue, D&D Beyond does a better job at building characters than any of the other digital tools I've used. Certainly for me, there is a... D&D Beyond is definitely a better digital tool for building characters than I've seen from any of the other ones that I've tried. And now that it is tied directly to Wizards of the Coast, it's going to have the most direct, accurate information that Wizards of the Coast publishes. But it doesn't do third party, and that makes it a little less sticky, frankly. You know, I think Roll20 is a little bit more sticky because it does offer third party content. I think that the digitizing the hobby is definitely going to happen. I, but I also think that there's a reason why the game is as popular as it is in the last five years. I mean, you know, phones have, you know, digital phones, smartphones have taken over the entire IT industry in the world. They've, come, they've changed the whole world, period. But boy, like personal computers, like sales of phones are way, way bigger than personal computers and stuff like that. And yet, the new version of DD came out during this. It wasn't like it got eaten up by phones and mobile technology and all this stuff. It's it grew with it, and I think the reason why is because the fun of D and D of being together with our friends, sharing tales and sharing stories, is stickier than clicker games. It's stickier than a lot of the other sort of digital forms of entertainment that a lot of other groups are trying to push us towards. And it's better than an instant gratification of social media. We, we, we find a richer experience when we're getting together with our friends playing D&D. So I think that that's powerful. And I think that if they try to go and like, hey, we're going to turn D&D to a clicker game. And there are D&D clicker games out there. There's already, they already exist. That you're not going to get people to go over to them like that because we like that experience. I do think, though, that when we look at the 70-30 split, that now 70, you know, according to my flawed survey, 70% of players are now playing online versus 30% that are playing in person. I think that that could actually mean this. I don't have data for it. That could mean that a lot more people are playing than were before because now digital play is so much easier to do. And that's certainly true. Two of my three regular games are now online because it's easier to play online. It's easier for people to get there. It's easier to play with people that aren't around you. So there's a lot of advantages in that. But I am also playing in person. And I can tell you that in-person games are, for me, a richer experience than an online game is. I really love playing in person. I'm very happy to be able to do it. So so there's lots of, you know, lots of tricks here about it. But so, you know, that's kind of how I feel about it and and how I feel. I don't feel bad. I don't feel... I don't feel a lot of nervousness about it. It was very interesting for me to explore how I had become very dependent on D&D Beyond and my players had become very dependent on D&D Beyond, but mostly because that was the platform we chose, not because it was like a global epidemic and that lots of other people didn't have the problem because they play on other platforms and they don't have those issues on other platforms, or they're not trying to play the kind of game that I'm trying to run where we're using a lot of third-party stuff. So that meant my problem was not unique, but not, not, you know, probably not the majority. And that has been interesting to, to do. Bringing up the idea of should Cobalt Press or MCDM build their own digital tools? I don't know. I would think it is in their benefit to at least make reference tools so that it's easy to look up like a spell. It's easy to look up a monster. Making a companion, and it was way easier to do than building a character builder. You know, and, and the example that I would bring up is the Level Up 5e has a5e.tools and World Publishing, who makes Level Up Advanced 5e, built this, this they, have, they call it the Open Beta Tools. And it has all, it's basically an online reference for all of the stuff that you have. So if you want to go, you can, you can do a search anywhere and you can say, let's take a look at their white. So you can take a look at their white and it gives a nice digital version of the white and it's mobile friendly. So I think having a mobile friendly reference to your books there's a question like, well, how do you charge for that? Right. How do you, how do you, if you know, you sell a book, how do you make money from an online tool like this? That I don't really have the answer to, but I think having, having or funding or building a website that gives you an online reference to me, it's certainly more valuable to me. I wish I had a good one for Cobalt Press. I wish I had more for, for third party ones, whether it's worth their time. I'm not sure. I, I, I asked Paul Hughes, who I think talked to Morris at NWorld about it. And I think they're still on the fence about whether or not this is a, you know, like, like valuable enough, like from a commercial level, valuable enough to do. Cause it's probably extra work to build a whole website and make sure it's up to, up to date. And of course you have the problem that the website could go down or it could get slow or you decide you can't fund it anymore and then it's gone. And then what do you have? We well, still have the physical books. 
So I, but, but I, but I tell you like, that's a really handy thing for D and D beyond that idea of having a reference where you can just quickly go and grab it. One thing I would love to see, I'd love to see roll 20, give you access to compendiums outside of the VTT. I'd like to see you get access to the character builder. If, if roll 20 abstracted more of its tools from having to be inside the VTT on a big ass screen, that would be certainly something I would love to see. I would love to have something that is mobile friendly. I want to be able to mobile. I want to be able to look stuff up on my phone quickly like and search because that's something you just you can't get from a physical book i can pick up that midgard book i can't search it and there's no index a lot of times they're too hard to do an index so they don't do an index it's really hard an online tool where i can search that's even better than control f on a pdf because that can get wonky too that would be something i would love to see so do i recommend they do it i'm not their business manager i don't know whether it's profitable or not do i think it might be useful i know as a user i would love to have a digital reference for that sort of thing but i think the future of digital is is going up Thank you for letting me pontificate, Diego. Thank you for letting me pontificate and enjoy. I hope I hope I I hope you checked off many boxes in your bingo card. Matt M says I'm currently running Dragon of Ice Spire Peak and will be going into the DD Beyond sequels when it's over. The story revolves around cultists who are worshiping the chaos, the chaotic evil deity Talos. One of my players decided to multiclass into Warlock. I offered her a few patron choices during a dream sequence, all tied to various themes, one of which was chaos. And that's the one she chose. So now I have a player whose warlock patron is the same as the chaotic evil deity worshipped by the bad guy cultists. Do you have any thoughts about how to run with this fantastic new development? Yes. One fun thing about warlocks is their relationship with their patron is not always symbiotic and good. They could have a very conflicted relationship with their patron. The other one is the patron does just because the patron has cultists that worship it doesn't mean it likes those cultists. It could see them as weak and pathetic and foolish and think I'm going to test one group against another by having one follower, i.e. the warlock fight the other ones. So I definitely think you can have a lot of fun with that. I think that the idea that maybe Talos is not just pure chaos and evil all the time, but also has some calculating nature that it's like, this is sort of that the, the warlock is a hedge, right? The warlock is a hedge bet that sure. I have all my cultists doing stuff, but I also have this warlock who's kind of against them just because maybe the warlock is the one that's the true power that's going on. I think you can have a lot of fun with that. I think having like the sinister voice of Talos speaking to the character can be great. You never want to take away the character's agency. The character can still be doing good things, but Talos is always kind of riding there, maybe suggesting bad things that they know are clearly bad. But giving that idea is really fun. I do this a lot with magic items. I, I love to give away magic items that have like an evil entity inside that doesn't try to control the characters, but just like whispers dark truths or reveals things they wish they didn't reveal. Like it's really fun to have that sort of evil angel on the shoulder the devil on the shoulder who's always talking it's a really fun thing to do and a great vehicle for secrets and clues great way to tell the characters information great way to do stuff like that but i think the key is that the relationship does not have to be a good one it can be an antagonistic relationship but don't take away the agency from the player let the player control their decide their own path and decide their own actions you probably don't want it to lead to like pvp kind of stuff you probably don't want it to lead where it's alienating one character from the other characters in the group that can be bad so you, so you don't want to watch out for some group dynamics make be careful the group dynamics but otherwise having like an evil voice of a god that's speaking to somebody and recognizing like they might have chosen chaos as their patron the player might have chosen it the character might not have the relationship between the warlock and their patron does not have to be a, a nice happy relationship it could definitely be a conflicted a conflicted relationship really 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 fun thing to do my friends, that is it for today's Lazy D&D Talk Show. If you enjoyed this show and you want more of my kind of stuff, the best way to do it is become a member of the Sly Flourish newsletter. You can subscribe to the Sly Flourish newsletter. The link is in the show notes below. When you subscribe, you will get a free Adventure Generator PDF and you will get a weekly D&D article sent directly to your inbox. You can also become a patron of Sly Flourish. Patrons get access to all kinds of exclusive material, exclusive adventures, the City of Arches sourcebook, the Patreon Q&A, the dedicated discord channel all kinds of things you can be a you and you get to support the show that i'm doing right now link for the patreon is in the show notes below you can also pick up my books return of the lazy dungeon master the lazy dms workbook and the lazy dms companion beautiful offset printed books you can pick them up on the sly flourish bookstore the link to the bookstore is also in the show notes below thank you all so much have a great day and get out there and play some D. &D.